Welcome everyone to the Godcast. Today we are joined by special guest Rabbi Bruce Cadden, who is a uh, rabbi uh, emeritus, I can never pronounce that word, at uh, Temple Bethel and currently serves as an adjunct faculty member at Pacific Lutheran University, which is a local university. So without further ado, uh, Rylan, uh, you can take it away with the first questions about Jewish history, the prophets, and the interpretation of uh, scripture. And by the way, this is an interview we've been super excited to do, and we've been trying to do this one for a while, so we are like incredibly excited for this one. So that being said, uh, Rylan, uh, take it away. Right. So in a previous interview that we had with the Buddhist reverend, we realized that it's very important to distinguish what denomination that the person we're interviewing represents. Um, so what are the main differences between Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform Judaism? Uh, and to which current, which one of these do you adhere to? So um, Orthodox Judaism is a term used to describe a wide variety of Jews with a traditional approach to Jewish religion, both in terms of belief and practice. Uh, and a wide range because there are some who might describe themselves as modern Orthodox and others who um, are Hasidic, which uh, reflects a uh, version of Judaism that developed first in 18th century Poland and continues today, and you know a variety of things in between. Uh, so that's the most uh, traditional. Uh, conservative is more the middle of the road uh, uh, version of Judaism, uh, where a lot of the traditions are respected and followed. Uh, the conservative Judaism, at least in theory, still believes in the system of uh, Jewish law, although sometimes they will interpret various uh, uh, laws differently than the Orthodox. Um, so, yeah, so in the middle of the road, both, again, belief and practice. Reform Judaism is really the most uh, liberal, if you will, uh, in terms of belief and practice, uh, giving its adherents the most options, uh, being in the forefront of uh, areas, for example, uh, Reform Judaism almost 50 years ago in 1972 ordained the first American female rabbi. Ultimately, conservative Judaism followed in that regard, but reform was in the forefront of that. Um, I grew up uh, in a congregation affiliated with the reform movement, went to Hebrew Union College, the rabbinic school affiliated with the reform movement, and uh, have um, uh, served reform congregations throughout my career. So really identify most closely with that denomination of Judaism. Awesome. I heard like you mentioned uh, Hasidic Judaism, and that was you know, that was as you obviously like no like it was funded by a guy named like the Baal Shem Tov. I know uh, he was. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because uh, his life is super fascinating. Uh, maybe we we could touch on that later, but like um, but yeah, like Rylan, you could uh, you could go for like the next question now if that's good. Right. Uh, could you give us a quick two to five minute history of Judaism from Abraham all the way to today? <laughs> sure. Just quick, um, so just Jews quick, consider quick. Abraham. Uh, whose story is told in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, he's introduced in chapter 11, but his story really formally begins in chapter 12. Uh, and uh, 
that goes throughout. So um, Abraham and his uh, descendants uh, lived in the land of Israel. Uh, Abraham was actually born elsewhere and uh, told by God to go to the land of Israel, which he did. Uh, and the next, uh, the book of Genesis is the story of his personal family, the generations that live there. At the end of Genesis, for various reasons we don't have time to go into, the family um, ends up in Egypt. Uh, and as uh, the book of Exodus opens, uh, what, what had once been a uh, family of uh, some 70 in number is now a uh, significant people, uh, which frightens uh, the Pharaoh, the Egyptian leader, who enslaves them. Uh, and uh, God selects Moses, uh, to uh, go to Pharaoh, demand the Pharaoh, uh, let the people go. Pharaoh refuses, uh, and through a series of plagues, uh, finally, uh, Pharaoh relents and allows the Israelites to leave Egypt. Uh, they do. They cross the Sea of Reeds. They journey to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up the mountain, and God, uh, according to Jewish tradition, not just only gives him the Ten Commandments, but the entire Torah, the entire first five books of Scripture. Um, Moses journeys down the mountain. The people continue on their journey through the wilderness, um, and ultimately that turns into a 40-year journey uh, before they get to the um, uh, border of uh, the land of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River, and then that's where the book of Deuteronomy ends. Uh, the book of Joshua picks up with the people entering the land and settling there, uh, growing there. They lived there for centuries, uh, but ultimately were displaced from there. The northern tribes were displaced by the Assyrians in about the 8th century before the Common Era, and uh, the uh, southern uh, tribes uh, displaced by the Babylonians in the 6th century before the Common Era. Uh, however, the Jews who were taken in exile to Babylonia returned to the land, built a second temple, uh, but it was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. Meanwhile, the Jews who stayed in Babylonia developed and flourished over centuries, spread throughout Europe, North Africa, ultimately uh, coming to uh, the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, uh, beginning in the 17th century, uh, and bringing really Judaism to the world. Uh, in the 20th century, two uh, important historical events happened that I will end on. The first was the Holocaust, the destruction of six million European Jews uh, by Nazi Germany, uh, and then uh, the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. And both of those events have played a crucial role in the development of modern Judaism. It's crazy, like, because, like, you know, I like I like to, you know, research our religion comparatively. And something I noticed about uh, Judaism is it's crazy how much, like, it, you know, it keeps going and keeps progressing because you have, like, um, you, you have the Talmud. Uh, like, once the, the scriptures are done, it seems like, there's even more to unpack. You have the Talmud and the, the Kabbalah um, that which uh, emerged. And if I'm correct, uh, you have the Talmud. Isn't it like the seventh century, I believe? It was um, ultimately finished in about the seventh century, but it was really amazing. I mentioned the Roman destruction of the second temple. And a lot of people think that should have ended Judaism because you no longer had your central place of worship where so much was focused. But uh, the rabbis who emerged from that period, led by Yochanan ben Zakkai at first and others, 
really reimagined Judaism, not as temple-centered, but as both synagogue and home-centered, and developed a full set of traditions, rituals, building on the biblical basis, but expanding them significantly, and really um, you know, creating a type of Judaism that is still in play in the 21st century. Wow, yeah, I just think that's like so cool how like you have you know, like like you said like the Talmud and then you have like the um the Kabbalah and then even in like something as relatively early as what like the 18th century you have a Hasidic Judaism. It's just like crazy how it keeps progressing, you know. Yeah, I mean, wherever Jews have lived, they have um you know, really developed in, in different ways. And uh, uh, you certainly had, you know, a lot of uh, new things happen uh, in the 18th, 19th century, you know, with the enlightenment and uh, responses to it, uh, you know, again, really creating the landscape of, of Judaism today. Uh, Reform Judaism began emerging in early 19th century Germany. Uh, so that was its uh, origins. Uh, awesome. Like Ryland, do you want to talk? Do you want to ask about like, question number three? That's good right now. Yeah. Um, so, what's the difference between the Christian Old Testament canon and the Jewish canon? So, um, there are, I think, you know, sort of three differences uh, in terms of the canons. First of all, even within Christianity, you have a different uh, Old Testament from the Catholic and Protestants. So um, the Catholics, uh, when they decided which books would be in the canon, um, added some books to uh, the Tanakh, which is what we call uh, that uh, part of the Bible that Christians call the Old Testament. Uh, they added some wisdom literature, uh, a book called Ecclesiasticus, uh, the wisdom of Ben Sira. Um, they added... Um, uh, the book of Baruch. Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe. These were Jewish books, but for various reasons, uh, the uh, rabbis who made the final decision didn't include them in the Tanakh. They also uh, included the books of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, uh, which contain the Hanukkah story. But again, for various reasons, the rabbis did not include them in the Tanakh. So uh, the Catholic version uh, has uh, a few extra books. It also has some additions to the book of Esther that are not in the Jewish version. When the Protestants came along, they sort of wanted to go back uh, uh, in time. And so they went back to the books that were included in uh, Jewish scriptures. However, the second thing that the Catholics did was rearrange the books of scripture. So in Judaism, you have the first five books, which we call the Torah. The next section we call the prophets, it actually begins with the history of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and then continues with those who we consider prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 shorter prophetic books, and then concludes with what we call writings, uh, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, uh, Ruth, Esther, etc., and concludes with uh, First and Second Chronicles. Um, the Catholic Church um, regrouped the books. It, it kept uh, the first five books together, uh, but then it continued the historical books. Uh, so it brought, um, for example, first and second chronicles and put them after, I believe, Samuel, because they are historical in that regard. It put the book of Ruth after Judges because it's set in the time of Judges, etc. And then 
uh, the last section of the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible today is the prophets. Uh, and the reason that that was important for the Catholic Church uh, is because the last prophet, Malachi, talks about uh, the future, the future coming of the Messiah. So that leads in quite well to Christianity and the New Testament, which comes next. So that's the second thing is the order of the books is different. And then the third thing is sometimes the translation. So um, when uh, Jewish scholars translate um, uh, the Bible, uh, they always begin with the Hebrew text. And then sometimes they will consult early translations, such as the Septuagint into Greek, uh, the Vulgate into Latin, uh, things they may have found at the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc., to help them with particularly difficult passages. Christian translations work in various ways. Uh, oftentimes, they will use the Septuagint, the Greek version, as their basis. They still may consult the Hebrew scriptures. So that means that sometimes you end up with uh, different translations. Most are not that significant, but there are, you know, some that are important. Uh, for example, probably the most important one is Isaiah 714, where the Hebrew term is generally translated as young woman, whereas the Greek term is generally translated as virgin. And this is, again, looking at the um, mother of the Messiah. So obviously for theological portraits, um, reasons that's very important as far as that goes. Uh, so, so occasionally you get those things. There are other differences too. Some Christian translations, for example, translate the commandment as you shall not kill rather than you shall not murder, which based on the Hebrews, probably a better translation as well as the context. Um, so there are those differences as well. Uh, there's a, I know that like some scholars and, and when, when examining the Sermon on the Mount, they notice uh, really interesting parallels, but they notice parallels between um, the Sermon on the Mount and um, the Greek Septuagint. Um, so it's kind of like um, they, they realize that when the gospel writers were probably writing that section, it's possible that uh, they were um, essentially copying from the Septuagint for that, for that portion. Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of places in the New Testament, you know, that refer back to stories uh, in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, um, like Elijah, um, you know, when he resuscitates someone, that is, you know, probably in part, uh, you know, part of the basis for Jesus doing the same. Uh, and uh, linguistically, there are some parallels in terms of, you know, certain sections with uh, what they find within uh, uh, scriptures. Uh, so it is interesting to sort of study and see the similarities and differences and, you know, try as best you can to figure out, you know, why that is. Uh, Ryland, did you want to ask, uh, like, the next question? Let's see, is Ryland here? Uh, he might. I know his internet was, like, not... Um, doing super well so i can just like go ahead and ask the next question if that's good um so yeah so i was wondering um aside from moses uh who would be like the who would who be another uh quote-unquote like important prophet uh, of the jewish faith aside from moses because i know that he's looked up to as like uh he, he's he has, yeah moses he has public, is considered yeah. the ultimate or quintessential prophet given his role I mean, he's much more than a prophet but at the end of his life uh the text says uh 
there never again uh, rose a prophet like Moses who knew God uh, uh, directly. Um, you know, the other major prophets in Jewish tradition are obviously Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the 12 minor prophets. There are stories of prophets told within the historical books, probably of those. Elijah is the most important uh, for his challenge to uh, the prophets of Baal, uh, sending a message to the people that uh, uh, idolatry is unacceptable uh, when you know, some within the people uh, wanted to embrace that idea. And uh, within Judaism, just as within Christianity, because uh, Christianity adopted it, Elijah is said to be the forerunner of the, uh, of the Messiah. So in Judaism, uh, based on uh, the description of the end of his life, where he goes up to heaven in a, uh, a chariot of fire, uh, he is said to you know, continue to live in uh, some way, shape, or form. So you find many stories about him. You find him returning to earth basically to determine if it's ready uh, for God to send the Messiah. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, he uh, plays an important role, uh, not just at the Passover Seder, uh, where we welcome him in anticipation of perhaps the coming of the Messiah, uh, but also uh, at the end of every Sabbath observance, when we uh, complete uh, the ritual called Havdalah uh, after sundown, uh, there's a song uh, about Elijah, again, hoping for his return. Uh, and then he's also said to symbolically be present at the uh, Brit Milah, the circumcision ceremony for uh, uh, baby boys, because of the idea that any baby boy could be the Messiah. Uh, so, um, so he continues to play a very important role within Jewish tradition. I know that when you talked about him ascending into heaven alive in a chariot, that was very reminiscent of some other people who have like done that. Cause I know in the old, in the old Testament or the, the, in those scriptures, like, uh, Enoch is also taken into heaven alive. And it's like, it's spawned given how like, um, abruptly that was stated it said something to the effect of uh like he walked with god and he was no more because god took him that spawned like the book of enoch which is like i believe uh three sections like first enoch second enoch and third enoch which was um like this essentially uh like it's apocrypha it's essentially you could say like fan fiction maybe you'd uh term it that way i know that balin uh balin's like really into like uh like mythology if you will and um and ma magic and things like that. So he, uh, I know that was something that he had studied. He'd read some of the book of uh, Enoch before. So I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was fascinating. And also, I believe if I'm correct, Moses's like stepmother, Pharaoh's daughter, she also ascended to heaven alive, if I'm correct on that. Or maybe- Well, I'm, maybe I think I'm there talking. are traditions about that. Yeah, I mean, you can find these different things based on you know what the text says and what it doesn't say and how people interpret it. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to like, let me see, uh, maybe hopefully Ryland can ask um, the next question if he's available. Let's see. If not, I'll, I'll just ask it. So like, um, so like due to like the fusion of allegory and, um, and history. So what would your, what would be your interpretation of the book of Genesis and how might it be interpreted? So, yeah. Um, again, I think that, um, I don't approach the book of Genesis or anything in the Torah as a literal history of what happened. Um, <coughs> excuse me. 
Uh, much of it, you know, is based on, I would say, legends that were passed down from generation to generation and ultimately written down much later. I accept the basically 19th century, although it has earlier origins, idea that uh, the, um, you know, the Torah uh, is comprised of, uh, you know, a number of different sources that were written down different places in different times and then carefully woven together. Um, so uh, I think that it does, uh, you know, contain, uh, you know, the, really the, the most important counts we have of the origins of Judaism in terms of Abraham's story and the like, but, you know, not necessarily a literal history of uh, what happened uh, as far as that goes, but certainly meaningful stories that teach important lessons and, uh, uh, carry on the story of the people. The earlier stories in Genesis, the first 11 chapters, really reflect earlier mythological uh, trends and ideas. Uh, there are parallels, for example, between the story of creation, the Gilgamesh epic, uh, epic uh, the uh, Noah story, and other uh, flood stories in the ancient Near East. Uh, so uh, these are sort of the, you know, Hebrew people's version of those accounts. And again, they teach very important lessons about things uh, to try to explain, you know, how we got here, how the world works, but, uh, you know, shouldn't be taken, you know, literally as far as that goes. This is probably a, a big oversimplification, but one of the, when I was like researching um, uh, Judaism a little while ago, it actually wasn't for this episode. I think it was like last school year, I learned, um, that one of the distinctions between like Orthodox uh, Judaism and other uh, versions was that the uh, the Orthodox Jews believed that the Torah was like literally revealed on top of Mount Sinai, if I'm uh, correct on that. And I also believe that right. Yeah, yeah, the traditional idea is that God really dictated the entire first five books of Scripture to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, and he wrote it down. And the version of the Torah that we have today and used in all our synagogues you know, is letter, li word for word, letter for letter like that. Um, those who are uh, not uh, Orthodox, uh, actually, before I say that, I should also add that in addition, um, Orthodox Jews believe that God dictated to Moses uh, the interpretation of the Torah, sometimes called the oral Torah, that was handed down orally from generation to generation. And that is what became the Talmud and other later writings in Judaism. So in that regard, all of that goes back to Mount Sinai, uh, which of course, uh, and to God at Mount Sinai giving its uh, importance. Um, those who are not Orthodox uh, don't you know, believe that. Uh, instead, you know, we believe that, uh, again, as I explained, the stories were you know, developed and handed down uh, it doesn't diminish their significance and importance, but it does indicate much greater human involvement in their de uh, development and handing down and ultimately writing down. Uh, and then, you know, we believe that, uh, you know, the Talmud, for example, is a result of the rabbis of the time interacting with the text they have and, you know, no doubt, excuse me, divinely inspired, uh, but uh, don't believe that that goes back uh, literally to Mount Sinai. Awesome. Uh, and then uh, I can I maybe ask uh, like one of the, um, I'll ask the last two questions. And I guess um, 
I'll have, I'll let like Noah and um, Balin answer them because I've just kind of uh, talked quite a bit. I was expecting this part to be reserved for Ryland, but since he left, uh, yeah. So um, I guess another question would be, oh yeah, and also it says that there's 10 more minutes left in the meeting, but but what'll happen is it'll just end and then, we can, and then I'll jump back on and we can all just jump back on after that. Awesome. So my question would be, um, how does pre-exilic Judaism differ from like post-exilic Judaism was one question I had. So um, obviously before the temple was destroyed and the Jews went into exile uh, in the first century, so much of Judaism was centered around the temple, the sacrifices at the temple. For example, right now we're celebrating the holiday of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. Well, in, when the temple stood, people from all over you know, the Jewish world would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, to make special offerings on Sukkot. Uh, that obviously changed with the destruction of the temple and um, the uh, Judaism that the rabbis created dictated that we now build these booths at our houses and synagogues and eat in them, sometimes sleep in them uh, and celebrate the holiday in that regard. Uh, it is, you know, really diffused Judaism uh, to uh, throughout the world. We can, you know, celebrate uh, in our houses of worship and in our homes. There are a lot of home rituals connected with each of the holidays uh, as far as that goes. And uh, the, uh, the other thing really is that at, while the temple stood, uh, the priests who served in the temple, who according to tradition, uh, were descendants from the tribe of Levi. Uh, and so it was a uh, really, you know, biologically determined, they were amongst the most important leaders of the community. Uh, the rabbis were really just emerging. With the destruction of the temple, it allowed the rabbis to really become the central Jewish leaders. And unlike the priests where it's hereditary, uh, becoming a rabbi is open to anyone. Well, for most of history, only to men, but since the um, uh, 1972, as I mentioned, also open to uh, women. Uh, but it's not based on hereditary. It's based on one's ability to learn the material and, uh, 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 and, and then teach it. So, um, uh, so that sort of changes the focus of, uh, of leadership as far as that goes, and really also serve to empower the individual to take charge of their own uh, Judaism, because the rabbis also developed uh, the entire liturgy uh, uh, that uh, uh, is now done, again, both home and uh, synagogue. Awesome. And like one thing that I find super cool about uh, Judaism is it seems to be like a like a nationwide phenomenon that spans over uh, extended periods of time. Because like in usually if you study if like usually in religion, what I've noticed about uh, Christianity is it's essentially you have the four Gospels and then um, Paul and then um, the literature attributed to John. And then with the Quran, it's Muhammad, uh, which uh, Muslims believe is real to Muhammad. But if you look at uh, Judaism, it's like so many different uh, prophets, so many different people over such a long period of time. It, like It's like an entire nation's history uh, and religion all rolled into one. So I thought that was over a super long period of time. So that's, that to me is what's super fascinating about it. Yeah. And, you know, again, uh, it continued in that way to develop after the destruction of the temple with the Talmud, Midrash commentaries on the biblical text and other things. Uh, you mentioned Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, 
that emerged in the Middle Ages and texts connected with that. Uh, and then uh, in the uh, uh, the emergence of Hasidic Judaism, you had mostly stories about Baal Shem Tov and other early Hasidic leaders, uh, but also you know texts that have emerged there. Uh, in the Middle Ages, you had philosophical texts, uh, for example, the Guide for the Perplexed by Moses Maimonides, uh, the Kuzari by Judah Halevi, uh, you know, just an incredible uh, variety and amount of, uh, uh, of writings that have played a, a crucial role in uh, the development of uh, Judaism. Um, Noah, would you like to ask um, the seventh question I had at Institutional Island? Uh, sure. Um, this one reads, uh, what are some of the other commandments besides the Ten Commandments? So according to tradition, there are a total of 613 commandments in the Torah, uh, 248 positive, 365 negative. Um, a lot of them are no longer relevant because of the destruction of the temple and the uh, cessation of sacrifices. Uh, but some of the other crucial ones are, first of all, uh, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself uh, in Leviticus uh, is one of the, I think, most important ones people would say. Um, you know, there are uh, commandments related to the observance of all of the different holidays, other ethical commandments about how to treat others uh, that aren't contained in the Ten Commandments are crucial. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, uh, quite a while ago, uh, my wife, Barbara, blessed memory, and I wrote a book called uh, Teaching Mitzvot, Mitzvot meaning commandments, a teacher's guide uh, for uh, teaching them. And uh, we came up with a total of 36 uh, crucial commandments. And, you know, the 10 commandments were each included, uh, but uh, we had 26 others that we felt were uh, essential uh, for young people uh, to learn about. Uh, and again, some of them were how you treat others. Some of them were, uh, you know, having to do with Jewish rituals, such as the, the blessing after we eat and the gratitude we show in that regard. Uh, so, um, so there really are uh, a lot of other uh, commandments that Judaism includes in uh, how we live our lives. Yeah, I saw that you had like on the on the webpage for Temple Bethel. I saw that you had written some like books, and I'll definitely. I was actually gonna like, uh, I was actually gonna like kind of um, like shout shout those out, but I guess like you're not really on like a on a book tour or anything like that, so um, <laughs> maybe not that. But like, I definitely want to like read those because like that's really cool that uh, you, that you've done. Uh, they've authored these books. I, I was like, I, I like, I have a lot of books on um, uh, Christianity, Gnosticism, and Zoroastrianism, but like Judaism is definitely something I want to study because it's like such a fascinating uh, religion and a fascinating uh, historical phenomenon. So I'll have, to, I'll have to check out those books. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and then um, Balin, did you want to ask uh, question eight? Yes. Uh, let me go ahead and ask that right now. Um, the influence of Jewish scripture is an influence unparalleled by any other religion. Um, the way I see it, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, uh, is this? if there had been no uh, Torah, would there be no Bible? 
And if there had been no Bible, would there be no Quran? And so what, what do you think is the thing that makes uh, Jewish theology and history so compelling? Yeah, I think you're hitting on something that's really crucial, and that is that with the, in Judaism, the creation of uh, the Torah and uh, its central place within Judaism, it sort of set the pattern for both Christianity and ultimately Islam, you know, to be text-based, text-centered uh, religious traditions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was just actually teaching this uh, uh, the other day in my class this year at PLU, and that is that if you go to a Jewish worship service, Christian worship service, Muslim worship service, central part of it is the reading of scripture. Uh, and in many ways, everything points to that. Uh, and again, I think it's because Judaism made that decision that uh, this would be, you know, the uh, most important part of the worship experience. But it's not just its place in the worship experience. It's there is a uh, one of the commandments to study Torah every day, Torah in its broadest sense. It doesn't have to be a passage from scripture. It could be something else in Judaism. So the idea is that, you know, we study this, we wrestle with the text, we debate, argue uh, to uh, try to basically figure out how best to apply it to our contemporary world. And I think that in many ways, both Christianity and Islam follows that, you know, in terms of their uh, views of the text and use of the text. Uh, you know, if you hear uh, a minister or priest giving a sermon, there will almost always be references to scripture. Uh, I'm not as familiar with imams, but I would imagine that it would be the same way. Uh, uh, the few experiences I've had in a mosque, you know, you certainly hear the words of scripture as central to their message. Like what I find so interesting about, uh, you know, Judaism is it's like, if, if, you if you didn't have the, the so-called Old Testament, then you wouldn't have the so-called New Testament. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have, you know, like uh, the Christian Apocrypha that makes up a lot of the, the stories of in the Quran. There's a lot of Quranic parallels between Christian Apocrypha, like the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew as an example, um, the, uh, the, the, the Proto-Evangelium, I guess, of, uh, or the Proto-Gospel of, of James as an example, um, which are used in the um, Quran, the name two examples. And then the whole concept of uh, Jesus or Isa as a prophet in the Quran. So it's just like, if you go back to the sources, then you see Judaism, which I find fascinating. Yeah, no, I would agree. You know, it really sort of set the model that the others have uh, utilized uh, in significant ways. And then um, either Balin or Noah, did you want to read a uh, question nine? Uh, sure, I can do it. Um, 